We don't notice. We're not paying attention. But it can be a thing of beauty. Physics and your alpacas. What a combination. This is the Alpaca Podcast for all things alpaca. If you're an owner, a soon-to-be owner, a want-to-be owner, or are just alpaca mad or love the fleece, welcome to the Alpaca Tribe. I'm Steve Hetherington. Hi, Steve here, and welcome to the podcast for alpaca people. Is that you? Do you think of yourself as alpaca people? I hope so, because I definitely think of you as part of the alpaca tribe. So, welcome. I've been thinking a lot about balance this week. I'm not sure whether it was first triggered by hurrying on some freshly wet grass and skidding around a bit, or because of being mindful of the moment as I was mucking out, reflecting on physics. More of that in a moment. Or of observing how natural standing on three legs and scratching almost anywhere with the fourth is for alpacas. I put a picture of Megan, our first valley-born career back in 2008, in the episode notes on the website at alpacatribe.com. Take a look and let me know what you think she's doing. It looks to me like she's saying, Hey, look, Mum, I can do ballet. I'm sure you could make a better guess than me about what the position might be called. Send me your suggestions to steve at alpacatribe.com. Anyway, the point is that there is a lot of physics going on in the keeping of alpacas, and being aware of it may make your life easier. Balance. Balance, that mystery of a dynamic equilibrium. You know when it's there, at the sweet spot, and you definitely notice when it's not there. Leverage, fulcrums, turning moments, and gravity. All useful to know about and use to your advantage, most of which we do intuitively, but maybe we could do even better if we think a bit too. Let's think about bags of feed. A typical bag of feed for alpacas is 20 kilograms in weight. You don't want to carry it too far, but how do you go about picking it up? If it is safe to do so while you're listening to the podcast, depends what you're doing, try closing your eyes and visualising. What is your technique for picking up a bag of feed? Under the arm? A bear hug, holding it to your chest, or hoisting it to your shoulder. I will tell you my technique in a moment. Self-taught and suitable for me, but you'll have to make your own decision and make sure you do it safely for you. The principles of manual handling are well-established and widely known, but also frequently ignored. I've had my share of back pain caused by overreaching or not bending at the knees. Don't do it. Instead, observe yourself over the next few days and notice what you are doing and what might make your life easier. 
I just think about lifting. We do a lot of this, so we should be good at it. But maybe, actually, we don't do enough of it and do it without thinking or reflecting. What kind of things do you pick up regularly? Bags of feed, yeah, coming back to that in a second. Fence posts, water containers, hurdles, shovels. You get the idea and could easily add your own particular loads to that list, I'm sure. So let's think about the principles for a minute. First one is know your limits. If it is too heavy, it really is too heavy. A quick lift doesn't make it lighter. Picking something up and putting it down are the risky times. Moving while carrying something heavy adds to the potential hazards. Can you see where you're going? Or are you holding the thing up in front of your face? Ideally, you should still be able to see your feet, but regularly you can't. So clear the path before picking up whatever it is you're going to carry. Straight backs are less vulnerable. Bend your knees and stand up straight. Think about how to get the pull of gravity to be straight down rather than at an angle. A shared load can be lighter, but also difficult to manage. To me, to you, to me. They're useful, along with putting it down on three. And can we stop? I'm about to drop it. We've all been there, haven't we? Definitely get someone to help you with the bigger, heavier things and agree in advance how you will communicate, especially if it's a volunteer or someone you don't often do this with. If you can, use equipment to help you, whether it's a wheelbarrow, a sack barrow, or a box on a tractor, or a quad. Pick things up near their centre of gravity. It requires less effort if you find that place of balance rather than strain yourself. Back to the bag of feed and my self-taught technique. Or, if you're listening and it was actually you that taught me, thank you for the tip. I think I made it up myself, but I'm not quite sure now. Anyway, my bags are usually stacked on a pallet to keep them off the ground, out of reach of wet and rodents, They lie flat in layers of five, alternating so they stack and stay rather than just slide and fall apart. It depends how high the pile is, but I often start lifting it from the top of the bag with my right hand and steady it with my left in a kind of cradling. But don't stop now or you're going to be in trouble. Okay, so I then hold it and swing it forward apparently away from me, but I'm still holding it. So it moves in an arc upwards and then back towards me, but not too close. With a bit of practice, you can get the speed and the effort just right so it swings up and back to rest on your left shoulder. That's me talking, being right-handed. I then shuffle or reset it on my shoulder so it's balanced and just needs a slight steadying hand to stop it cascading back onto the floor. I can then walk with it. There you go. That's how I do it. But what's your technique for feed bags? Is it easy? Is it safe? Can you do it without hurting yourself? That's gravity and picking up dead weight. But what about mucking out with a shovel? Smaller scale, but if you do a lot of it, it's 
heavy work. I like to use a plastic shovel that's often called a grain shovel. It's very light and has a broad, flat mouth. It's not for digging, so much as scooping off a flat surface. In the UK, you can also get them more in the winter for shoveling snow. But it's a lightweight plastic, so it's not for digging, but it's potentially for moving grain and that kind of thing. As you move towards the pile of alpaca beans, neatly brushed into a circle, hopefully, or better yet, an oblong, about two-thirds the width of the shovel, you push and start to get under the pile and its weight. Now, if the pile's too wide, it spreads outside of what you can contain on the shovel, and you have to make multiple passes and sweep it up or drag it back into the pile again. So don't overload, but work out your best personal loading weight. I'm sure, like me, you'll get plenty of practice to work that out. Now, just before you lift the loaded shovel, slide your left hand. You've got to do it in reverse if you're not right-handed. So I'm holding the, the top of the shovel with my right hand. Then slide the left hand down the long handle shaft, down as close as possible to the blade or the scoop. And then lift. Next time you do this, Practice with a half-loaded shovel and repeatedly try lifting it with your hand progressively closer to the scoop end. You could even try this with a forkful of peas at mealtime. And you can blame me if you get told off for playing with your food. Tell them Steve said that you had to do this physics experiment to help you keeping alpacas. They won't understand what you're talking about, but we'll just put it down to your being alpaca mad. I once repeated a botany lecture over a mealtime, complete with dissection of a pea from my plate. Do you know why pea plants are called dicotyledons? Uh, it's a completely different story. I won't go there. Okay, so this is physics at work. It's a fulcrum and lever. The longer the lever is, your right hand, from the fulcrum point, your left hand, the easier it is to apply lift to the load on the other side of the fulcrum, the shovel scoop. I'm sure I've completely lost you by now. This is perhaps more suited to video. Another project for the back burner. My plea really is to notice what you're doing next time you pick something up or muck out or do something with a wheelbarrow, whatever it is. Notice and see if subtle changes in technique or positioning or the kind of tool you're using could make a difference. As a last word at this point, do yourself a favour and invest in a two-wheeled wheelbarrow. It is much easier to keep your balance. Knots. Knots. Knots are fascinating, don't you think? Oh, I, I just let me show you what's inside a pea. When I dissect it, can, can you see that? This becomes the... So, in conclusion, three points to take away. Use physics for you rather than against you. Number two, the takeaway is notice how you do things. The third takeaway, don't just have a try anyway. When your head is screaming, don't do it. Stay safe. And now it's time for Down on the Farm. Let's see what's been going on. Well, there's been some big changes this week. After saying last time that the geese were not ready for leaving yet, which stayed true for a couple of days, they're now gone. 
and our valley sounds different without our 20 Canadian friends around. I have a real Canadian friend. Quick shout out to Linda McLaughlin and her podcast, The Arena. Hi, Linda. And when speaking to her about my 20 Canada geese, she said I could keep them. (laughs) Well, we tried, but they left anyway. So Canadian flight school was in session in a big way for a few days, and the stragglers who couldn't make it across the car park and had to walk the last bit to plop back into the water started to get the hang of it. They kept marching up slopes and then taking off back to the lake and landing on the water. Sometimes after a practice, they would do a climb and a turn and then back on the water. The other day, I was out with the tractor and I disturbed them from their position on the bank above the lake. So they took off and some of them, they split off into two groups and some of them went higher and higher. Now they're turning, but now they've got to go higher to go over the trees at the end of the lake. So they went up. There was only seven of them. So it wasn't a full set, <laughs> but off they went and they, they'd they found their wings and they flew up the lake and higher and then circled and banked up near the house and then back down the lake and along and over the trees again and back. They're still really high by this point. And before you know it, they've done this a few times, all this banking and turning and they look like they're having such fun. And they then headed out of the valley. They'd gone. They headed out of the valley, seven of them. Well, the rest of them were down in the car park looking a bit bemused and wondering what on earth was going on. So, oh, that's a bit of a problem. There's nothing I can do about it anyway, but the intrepid seven adventurers were up and off and gone. But they were back again within five minutes and seemed really excited and were reveling in their newfound freedom. Reunited with the herd. Oh, sorry, flock. They do seem to share a strong grouping instinct with alpacas. Reunited with the group, the flock, they settled and that was fine. They still did now again bits of flying. But the next day, the honking started early with the test flights. So it's the call, the honk, seems to get them all ready. And here we go. And it winds them all up ready to fly off. So it started early. The group of 12 this time, there were two pairs, one with seven goslings and one with a single gosling. So that makes up the 12. Difficult to see which actually were the smaller ones, which were the goslings now, because they're all big. The smaller and slightly younger brood were still in the corner of the field by the house and they got stuck by the fence. And as a group, they stared wistfully as that seven, which now becomes a 12 and are still flying and doing really well, they went it took off and they climbed and they cleared the trees at the end of the valley. They're gone, which is no mean feat. They're very tall trees. And they were left watching wistfully after the departed friends and family honking quietly. Soon the adults with that group called them honking again and they went and they lifted off and turned and banked and climbed. And before no, they'd gone as well, cleaning the treetops. This then left me doing the wistful staring out of the valley after them. I know they're not mine and they're nothing to do with me, really. They just borrowed my valley for a while. We've not seen anything of them since. No postcards. I hope they found each other again, the two groups, and I hope they have a good summer and fall. No doubt we shall see some of them next spring or during the winter when it's really cold and icy. They seem to pop back for an afternoon. I can't help thinking, though, 20, 
20's a lot and hoping that maybe the original pair could try and come just by themselves next time. The impact of them leaving is that it's quieter. The alpacas also get to graze in their field without geese for competition. And the alpacas seem more relaxed about venturing out into the car park and the surrounding area, which was previously frequented by the geese. I I don't think they were really aggressive, but there was quite a lot of them, which is a bit intimidating. (laughs) The ducks, the moorhens and the herons appear to be enjoying the extra space as well. Creer watch is imminent, and I'll keep you informed on that. The girls seem to be doing okay. Topical tips. Yeah. So... Keep a lookout for wounds or collections of flies around the alpacas, which could suggest potential fly strike. Prevention is a hundred times better than cure afterwards. And the second idea, a topical tip, is to walk your boundary and check the posts are still secure and not rotted at the base. Alpacas don't challenge fences much, but it's better to know of potential escape points that their curiosity may lead them to explore. So I hope you have a good week. Take care. Be safe in everything you do, especially picking things up. And if you can, go spend some time with an alpaca. Bye for now. This is the Alpaca Tribe, and I'm Steve Hetherington. Have a great day.